0: Heavenly marriage coming out of Colossians chapter 3 verses 18 and 19. A heavenly marriage. Colossians chapter 3 verses 18 and 19. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time that we have in your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak through your word, speak during this time to us. Lord, we desire to hear from you and so bless this time as we offer it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me read you Colossians 3, 18 and 19. The Bible says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. The reason I titled the message A Heavenly Marriage is not because we want to bring heaven down to earth, though I believe that you can get closer to that Than in any other relationship on the earth in marriage, but because we are married to one who is perfect as Christians. And if the foundation of your life isn't there as a Christian, then you will struggle in life in every relationship. The Bible says in Isaiah 54, verse 5 For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel he is called the God of the whole earth. In the Bible as well, it is declared that we as the church are the bride of Christ. So Jesus Christ is our groomsman, our husband. And as the church, we are the bride. And the Father is preparing us for eternity. When God's wrath his judgment will be poured upon this earth in a seven-year hell-on-earth tribulation. The church will be experiencing a, a seven-year honeymoon in heaven with God called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so in order to have a heavenly marriage, the perspective has to start with God and our relationship with Him because you are in a marriage bringing two imperfect people together with two backgrounds, with two temperaments, with two idiosyncrasies, with two dynamics that are just a recipe for disaster, because a marriage is a daily opportunity to see how selfish you are. And we are selfish by nature. And so when I say a heavenly marriage, I mean our marriage to Jesus, our marriage to God, And then everything else flows from that. And so you can have an awesome, fantastic marriage if you love Jesus. And you will have a horrible existence if the reality of your life doesn't prove that to be so. As I begin, I will share two stories with you. One is a young man who was walking along one of Southern California's sandy beaches with his surfboard. He suddenly spots this little body, uh, bottle, I'm sorry, which has recently washed up on the beach. It's obvious it's been tossed around for a long time. He picks up the bottle and notices that it still has the cork intact. So being curious as to what may be inside, he manages to get the cork out and pops and out pops a genie. After expressing profound appreciation for having been let out of the bottle, the genie grants his benefactor the classic, one wish, and it will be yours. Being an avid surfer, it doesn't take him long to say, I've always wanted to surf Hawaii, but I get seasick on ships and I'm afraid to fly. Would you build me a bridge to Hawaii? The genie replies, do you know what you are asking for? Do you know how long the bridge would have to be? Think of the enormous challenges for that kind of undertaking, the supports required to reach the bottom of the Pacific, the concrete and steel it would take. It will nearly exhaust several natural resources. And the maintenance of that bridge, no, think of another wish. The man said, okay, and tried to think of a really good wish. Finally, he said, I've been married and divorced four times. My wives have always said that I don't care and that I'm insensitive, so I wish that I could understand women, know how they feel inside and what they're thinking when they give me the silent treatment, know why they're crying, know what they really want when they say nothing, know how to make them truly happy. I really want to understand women and how they think. After a long sigh, the genie responds... Would you like that bridge with two lanes or four? (laughs) My next story before we begin. A couple was celebrating their golden wedding anniversary, 50 years, on the beaches of Montego Bay, Jamaica. Their domestic tranquility had long been the talk of the town. People would say, what a peaceful and loving couple. The local newspaper reporter was inquiring as to the secret of their long and happy marriage. The husband replied, well, it dates back to our honeymoon in America, he explained the man. We visited the Grand Canyon in Arizona and took a trip down to the bottom of the canyon by horse. We hadn't gone too far when my wife's horse stumbled and she almost fell off. My wife looked down at the horse and quietly said, "'That's one.' We proceeded a little further and the horse stumbled again. Once more, my wife quietly said, "'That's two.' We hadn't gone half a mile when the horse stumbled for the third time. My wife quietly removed a revolver from her purse and shot the horse dead. I shouted at her, "'What's wrong with you, woman?' Why did you shoot the poor animal like that? Are you crazy? She looked at me and quietly said, that's one. (laughs) And from that moment, we lived happily ever after. (laughs) The difficulty in coming to a passage like we have today is not that I apologize for the Word of God. The Word of God has things to say that uh, they can make us uncomfortable, they're politically incorrect. I really don't care about those things. Let God be true and every man a liar. And so I don't apologize for the Word of God, but I will say this I am one half of a marital relationship, having one perspective within that marital relationship. I'm a man coming from a man's perspective. And so I didn't want to give you my opinion, my weaknesses and strengths, my successes and failures within marriage because it would all be tainted. It would all be suited towards my half of the equation, my side of where I'm coming from as it relates to marriage and a relationship. I will say this. Next to salvation, my marriage is the single greatest thing that I have on this earth. I've been married to my wife for 29 years, and I have experienced no greater depth of love than with my wife, Roxanne, on this earth. And it's been a blessing, truly a blessing from God. And so what I want to do is I want to take you through a little bit of what I do in premarital counseling so that I can let you know how God speaks towards this topic. Then we're going to break down these two scriptures as it relates to marriage in the Bible. So what I do, the first, one of the first things that I do through marriage is um, I never charge for counseling. What I did was, in marriages I wasn't charging and I noticed that people weren't doing the homework. And then I begin to tally up how much marriage uh, counseling would cost if I were to take them through I try to take them through a six-month period. I try to meet with them at least twice a month, and we spend anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours each session. And so I tallied it, and it came to about $2,000. And so people would ask, how much do you charge for marriage counseling? And I say, you can't afford it, because $2,000 is a lot of money. And so I wouldn't charge anything, but I would tell them, you can't afford it. And what I found was people wouldn't do their homework. So I was invested in their marriage more than they were, and so I began to charge, and I made it about $500. I would charge people $500, and I noticed they all did their homework, and so there is a value placed on the time that we were spending to what I did. Well, every time I do a marriage, I, of course, get invited to the wedding, and so getting invited to the wedding, my wife would say, why don't you take your marriage counseling and tell them... that's your gift. And so that's what I began to do. So this premarital counseling that I do is an evolving thing. It evolves as time goes on. And so that's what I've been doing lately. I tell people, okay, my time will be my gift to you, so don't expect my wife to buy a present and bring it to the wedding because this will be my gift. And my wife liked that, and it worked out, and some people took it serious. I did have a couple that I married last, two months ago, that they didn't start doing their homework, and I said, hey... I'm going to start charging you if you don't do your homework, and then they started doing their homework again, and so there was a value placed to it once again, and so the first thing I do is I have them go through a series of messages online, so they have homework apart from me, and the series that I have them go through is by Pastor Skip Heitzig, Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he does a series called The House That God Builds. And within that series, there are five messages that are mandatory that I have them do. God plans a wedding, the breakdown of the first family, the family of well-lubricated machines, submission, a roll with a go, and the strong shelter of a husband's love. So they go online, they listen to the messages, and then we come back, and I have the handbook for them, and we go over questions. And what I'm doing during that time is I'm getting them to hopefully speak. Why? Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I want them to see one another as they're speaking and what's coming out of their mouth, because that's what's in their heart. And through that, sometimes we see, wow, maybe this couple's not ready right now. There have been so far two couples that I have not married as I've gone through this thing, this, this premarital counseling. One of them did not want to meet. Um, the mother of the daughter asked if I marry people, and I said yes, but I would have to meet with them. She went back to the daughter, said that he has to meet with you, and uh, she said, no, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to talk about my marriage and what we're doing. I just want him to show up at the wedding and marry us, and I said, mm, I can't do that. The other couple was the the wife-to-be was extremely committed to the Lord and the husband didn't know the Lord, but that didn't come out until our first meeting, where in speaking to them, I was asking them about their relationship with the Lord and his was non-existent. And so I shared the gospel, shared the love of Christ, shared how Jesus died on the cross for his sins and I put it out there for him and I said, look, I'm not going to beat you upside the head, why don't you go ahead and go home with that, think about what I just said, but for me to marry you guys, you would have to be committed to Christ I am not going to marry God's girl, God's daughter, to Satan's son. I don't know if he was offended, but I left it at that, and they found somebody else to marry them. And so marriage is a very serious thing. It's a commitment to the Lord. You're making vows to the Lord, a promise to God. And so after we do that, where we go through the foundations of marriage and the scripture and these messages, then I have them listen to a message that I did here called God and money. Money is a big reason for many couples to disagree and fight and argue over, and so I want them to know what their money personalities are, and I want them to know the strengths and weaknesses of those money personalities. The five money personalities are spender, saver, risk taker, security seeker, flyer. If you want to discern yours, you can go online, cclivingwater.net, look up God and money, and you can listen to that message, and it will Delineate, it will define each one of those money personalities and you'll be able to see yourself in them. After that, I do a budget with them. I ask them how much money they make and what they're doing with their money. And we get a little invasive and this makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. You should be tithing 10%, saving 10% and giving 10% away. 30% of your money should be doing that. And most people aren't doing that and they wonder why they struggle with money. Then I have them go online and I have them take a love language quiz to determine what their love language is, how they love and how they, express, how they express love and how they receive love. There are five love languages as well. Words of affirmation, acts of service, gifts, quality time, and physical touch. And then I encourage them to speak one another's love language. That's very, very important in a relationship. If my love language, for example, is gifts and I'm to love somebody whose love language is words of affirmation and I never say anything nice but only put them down all the time but I buy them gifts, I'm not speaking their love language. And so they're almost insulted with the gifts that I'm buying them because I'm not speaking their language but I never encourage them the way they receive love. So it's very important to know what one another's love languages are, how you're loved, how you receive love and how you give love. After the wedding, I have them uh, purchase a series called Love and Respect by Dr. Emerson Emerson Edgerich. I don't know how to say his name. It includes the textbook, workbook, a devotional book, and this will be the first, hopefully, of many devotions that they can do as a married couple. It has 52 devotions, and so they can do one a week, and that gets them in the Word, that gets them kind of hopefully tied into reading together or at least talking about godly things in the word of God together. That, then pretty much um, after that, we're, we're done with the premarital and um, hopefully there's a follow-up at some point um, where we just touch bases. Now, as far as the scriptures and marriage, there are only 10 in all of the Bible, 66 books in the Bible, there are only 10 scriptures or scripture references groups relating to marriage and many of them are found in uh, one book I will share those just for the purpose of them being on the recording but scriptures on marriages are Genesis chapter 1 verses 27 and 28 Genesis chapter 2 18 through 25 Proverbs 5 15 through 19 Malachi 2 14 through 16 Matthew chapter 19 verses 3 through 6 Mark, chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 5. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 16. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 27 through 40. Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Colossians 3, 18 and 19, the verse that we're looking at today. Titus 2, 4 and 5. Hebrews 13, 5 5, and 1 Peter 3, 1 through 9. And so those are the 10 scriptures or sets of scriptures given on marriage in the Bible. And marriage has a lot more to do with our relationship with God than it has to do with the marriage itself. Now, let's take a look at this Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Again, the Bible says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord's. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Wives, submit. As I listen to studies over and over on this section of scripture, um, there's almost an apology as we come to the Bible. There's a lot of jokes made and almost like God didn't have this figured out and he didn't know what it would be like in 2016 and such an archaic way to approach life and yet what is the state of many marriages today? I think God knows what he's talking about. And I think God has our best interest at heart when he tells us what he tells us. And so as I always say, we obey the scriptures to our benefit, we disobey to our detriment. The ancient Greek word translated submit is essentially a word borrowed from the military. It literally means to be under rank. It speaks of the way that an army is organized among levels of rank with generals and colonels and majors and captains and sergeants and privates. There are levels of rank, and one is obligated to respect those in higher rank. We know that a person, as a person, a private can be smarter, more talented, and better, uh, a better person than a general, but he is still under rank to the general. He isn't submitted to the general so much as a person as he is to the general as a general. In the same way, the wife doesn't submit to her husband because he deserves it. She submits because he is her husband. Warren Wearsby says, The idea of submission doesn't have anything to do with someone being smarter or better or more talented. It has to do with God-appointed order. Anyone who has served in the armed forces knows that rank has nothing to do with order and authority. I'm sorry, knows that rank has to do with order and authority, not with value or ability. Um, Theologian Vaughn says the form of the verb is in the middle voice. It shows that the submission is to be voluntary. The wife's submission is never to be forced on her by a demanding husband. It is the deference that a loving wife Conscious that her home, just as any other institution, must have as a head, gladly shows. Wives, submit to your own husbands. This defines the sphere of the wife's submission, to her own husband. The Bible never commands nor recommends a general submission of women unto men. It is commanded only in the spheres of the home and in the church. God does not command that men have exclusive authority in the areas of politics, business, education, and so on. And so, unfortunately or fortunately, our next president will probably be a woman. And there's nothing biblically wrong with that. But I will say this, America in its history has only seen men lead this nation. As is fitting in the Lord, the Bible goes on to say, this is a crucial phrase. It colors everything else we understand about this passage. There have been two man wrong interpretations of this phrase, each favoring a certain position. The interpretation that favors the husband says that as is fitting in the Lord means that a wife should submit to her husband as if he were God himself. The idea is you submit to God in absolutely everything without question, so you must submit to your husband in the same absolute way. This thinks that as is fitting in the Lord defines the extent of submission, but this is wrong. Simply put, in no place does the scripture say that a person should submit to another in that way. There are limits to the submission your employer can expect of you. There are limits to the submission the government can expect of you. There are limits to the submission parents can expect of children. In no place does the scripture teach an unqualified, without exception, submission, except to God and God alone. To violate this is to commit the sin of idolatry. The interpretation that favors the wife says... That as is fitting in the Lord means I'll submit to him as long as he does what the Lord wants. And then it is the wife's job to decide what the Lord wants. This thinks that as is fitting in the Lord defines the limit of submission. This is also wrong. It is true that there are limits to a wife's submission. But when the wife approaches as is fitting in the Lord in this way, then it degenerates into a case of I'll submit to my husband when I agree with him. I'll submit to him when he makes the right decisions and carries them out the right way. When he makes a wrong decision, he isn't in the Lord, so I shouldn't submit to him then. It isn't fitting to do so. Simply put, that is not submission at all. Except for those who are just plain cantankerous and argumentative, everyone submits to others when they are in agreement. It is only when there is a disagreement that submission is tested. As is fitting in the Lord does not define the extent of a wife's submission. It does not define the limit of a wife's submission. It defines the motive of a wife's submission. It means, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands because it is part of your duty to the Lord. Because it is an expression of your submission to the Lord. They submit simply because it is fitting in the Lord to do it. It honors God's word and his order of authority. It's part of their Christian duty and discipleship. Vaughn once again says, the phrase in the Lord indicates that wifely submission is proper, not only in the natural order, but also in the Christian order. The whole thing then is lifted to a new higher level. Therefore, as is fitting in the Lord means for wives, submission to their husbands is part of their Christian life. When a wife does not obey this word to submit to their own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord, she doesn't just fall short as a wife, she falls short as a follower of Jesus Christ. This means that the command to submit is completely out of the realm of my nature or my personality. Wives aren't expected to submit because they are submissive types. They are expected to submit because it is fitting in the Lord. This has, to do with your, this has nothing to do with your husband's intelligence or giftedness or capability. It has to do with honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. This has nothing to do uh, whether or not your husband is right on a particular issue. It has to do with Jesus being right. This means that a woman should take care, great care in how she chooses her husband. Remember, ladies, this is what God requires in your marriage. This is his expectation of you. Instead of looking for an attractive man, instead of looking for a wealthy man, instead of looking for a romantic man, you better first look for a man you can respect. As in the case of every human relationship, the command to submit is not absolute. There are exceptions to this command for a wife to submit to her own husband. When the husband asks the wife to sin, she must not submit. When the husband is medically incapacitated, insane, or under the influence of mind-altering substances, the wife may not submit. When the husband is violent and physically threatening, the wife may not submit. When the husband breaks the marriage bond by adultery, the wife does not need to submit to her husband being in an adulterous relationship. I found it interesting as I was studying this week and I was listening to different messages, one definition from Ephesians chapter 5, which is the parallel uh, section of this section in Colossians chapter 3 where it says at the end of that section in Ephesians chapter 5 so wives see that you respect your husbands the word respect is defined as to wait and to think so a husband comes to a wife with something that she immediately disagrees with she immediately thinks within herself there ain't no way that's happening on God's green earth I'm just saying Instead of immediately verbalizing that, respect your husband. Wait and think. Sit with it. Take it to the Lord. If God doesn't want it, he'll reveal his word. He'll show it within his scripture. But oftentimes what we think is it's this battle that we just have to. It's one opinion versus another opinion. And that isn't godly submission. The Bible goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, Husbands, love your wives. Paul's word to husbands safeguards his words to wives. The wives are to submit to their husbands. It never excuses husbands acting as tyrants over their wives. Instead, a husband must love his wife. And the ancient Greek word translated love, agape. It is a love that loves without changing. It is a self-giving love that gives without demanding Or expecting repayment. It is love so great that it can be given to the unlovable and the unappealing. It is love that loves even when it is rejected. Agape gives and loves because it wants to. It does not demand or expect repayment from the love given. It gives because it loves. It does not love in order to receive. We can read this passage and think that Paul means... Husbands, be kind to your wives, or husbands, be nice to your wife. There is no doubt that for many marriages this would be a huge improvement, but that isn't what Paul writes about. What he really means is husbands, continually practice self-denial for the sake of your wife. Of course, this agape love is the kind of love that Jesus has for his people, and this is the love husbands should initiate toward their wives. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. If you think about what Jesus did in eternity, in heaven, Jesus is seated in heaven and he leaves his home, the comfort of his home, and he enters into his bride's world and he dies there for her. And that's what husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church really comes down to. For husbands, We need to get out of our own heads, enter into our wife's world, and die to self right there on their behalf for their sake. It goes on to say, and do not be bitter toward them. The implication is perhaps the wife has given the husband some reason to be bitter. Paul says that doesn't matter, husband. The husband may feel perfectly justified in his harsh or unloving attitude and actions, toward his wife but he is not justified no matter how the wife has been towards the husband agape loves even when there are obvious and glaring deficiencies even when the receiver is unworthy of the love i used to in my marriages quote two different sections of scripture as i was sharing within the marriage but my wife who is so smart, said that it comes across pretty harsh because it's an in-your-face approach to what the Bible declares. And so what I started doing was ending with this now uh, on both for both the wife and the husband as it relates to Ephesians 5, the roles for the husband and the wife. I'll read you both of them. Um, one of them is found in John Corson's study Bible of the New Testament. And Ephesians chapter 5, 22 says, Wife, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And this is what John Corson says. He says, Great is the day, wife, when you realize that ever since the Garden of Eden, males have been missing something. You see, when Adam went to sleep in the garden, God took a rib from his side. And from it, he fashioned the woman, the completer of the man. Why doesn't your husband communicate more freely? Why doesn't he feel things more deeply? It, it, I believe it all stems from the fact that he's missing a rib. He's missing the part that was given to you. Well, if he's missing something, yet I still want to communicate, what do I do, you ask? In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam lost something. But there's another Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. So complete is the last Adam that he is not only portrayed in Scripture as a male bull, but as a red heifer, a female cow, as well. Not only is he the epitome of strength, he is also the very essence of tenderness. Dear sister, as long as you look to your husband to meet your deepest needs, you'll be frustrated perpetually. You'll put pressure on him to be what he cannot be because he's missing something. It is only in Jesus Christ that you will find true fulfillment in talking to him in learning of him and Walking with him, you will find the satisfaction your heart is craving. Drink deeply of the last Adam, the perfect one, Jesus Christ. For when you tap into him and maintain a vital personal daily devotional life, you won't push your husband to be something he cannot be. Wives, continue to love the Lord with all your heart and soul, with all your mind and strength, just as you did before you were married, for it is only in him that you will find the answer to the cry of your heart. And then to the husband, I take from a book that I have at home, and it's a biblical ethics book, and I've shared this before, but I'll share it again. On the verse, Ephesians 5.25, where it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. The author of that book writes, how does Christ love the church? Paul alludes to the dark hours of the cross when he gave his life. Five of the seven sayings were on behalf of others. How did Jesus love the church? On the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. And then the author writes, forgiveness is the standard. And he forgave even when they did not ask for it. Long-suffering, forbearance, even when she usurps my role, yes, even when she crucifies you, that is God's kind of loving. Number two, today you will be with me in paradise. He accepted the sinner as he was, the ultimate failure, hanging on a cross. So with one's wife, fastidious or sloppy, disorganized or computer-perfect, young and beautiful, or aging and overweight, acceptance. By grace, introduce her to paradise. Number three, mother, here's your son. Son, here's your mother. Incredibly selfless, kind and gentle. He makes provision for all her needs, all her weaknesses, even while he himself is in mortal agony. Number four, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate sacrifice, his most precious right, union with his father. But what of my right to time for my own fun or my own important ministry? God's kind of love is to forsake all rights necessary to love her well, to choose and act in her best interest as a way of life. And finally, number five, it is finished. Faithful to the end, to the end of the argument, to the end of the day, to the end of life. And so I share those two um, quotes in in kind of closing. And then I wrote down, uh, as we close here, the vows that I share. And I like to take the traditional vows. I'm a traditionalist in a lot of ways. I don't like a lot of the new and improved stuff that has out, come out because I don't think it's very improved. Um, I'm not big on nuptial, prenuptial agreements where what's yours is yours and what's mine is mine. I don't think that that promotes health in a relationship where God is miraculously making two become one. And so my wedding vows... Even though sometimes people want to write their own vows, I like that, and that's fine, but I'll always include these vows, and I'll have them repeat after me. And so I say, I groom, take you, bride, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance, And thereto I pledge you my love and faithfulness. They both repeat that, and then we have an exchange of rings, and we go through the ceremony. The interesting thing about a vow is a vow is not to one another as much as it's to the Lord. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, the vow says that it is better not to vow and to complete than to vow and not complete. And so in this world of compromising values, the Bible still has something to say to us as it re- relates to life and what we want to experience in life. And I believe that any individual can have a heavenly marriage, whether single or married, if they are connected to the ultimate in perfection, God Himself. And in that, find strength to be able to bring to a relationship. And so, if you're single, desiring to be married. Don't desire that for what that marriage can bring to you, but in fulfillment of your life and out of an abundance and overflow because you are so fulfilled with God in serving Him that there's an outflow that you want to bring to another person, not what you want to receive from that person. You will be perpetually frustrated in life. And for those of us who are married, nobody will ever be sorry for obedience to what God calls us to in the scriptures. This life is very short in comparison to eternity. And the most fulfilling relationship that we can experience on earth can be the absolutely most difficult thing we will ever experience on earth. Because once again, you have two individuals... With two temperaments, with two personalities, with two idiosyncrasies, with two mood swings coming together. And what that is meant to do for the Christian is provide a daily mirror mirror, mirror, mirror. That reflection thing? Mirror, mirror. to show you how selfish you are. That's what a marriage is meant to do. It holds up a mirror on a daily basis and it shows you how selfish you are so that you can be selfless and give to that other person and so i don't know where we got off in thinking what it was supposed to be or what it was supposed to do but that's what it is die to self jesus says all who would desire to come after me must first what is it crucify themselves All who would desire to come after me must first deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And I think marriage proves a very (laughs) awesome thing, venue, for that to take place in. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that we would desire to represent you well in all of our relationships. Father, I pray for my single brothers and sisters, that they would find fulfillment and satisfaction in you. And Lord, if they do not have that gift of singleness and there is a desire on their part to be able to be connected with another human being in marriage, Father, I pray that you would work that through in their heart and their mind, that you would bring that individual that you have for them, that they would be, Lord, a one-woman man and a one-man woman. And Father, I just thank you for just the blessing that relationships on earth can be. And Lord, they truly do show us The reality of how selfish we can be. I pray, Lord, that we would die to self, that we would look to bring our very best to that person. For I know that in eternity, Lord, none of us will ever be sorry for obedience to you and what you've called us to. And so, for the marriages that are represented here, I know that the enemy would love to attack those marriages. I know that the enemy would love to be in the midst of that marriage bed that is undefiled. And so, Father, I pray that you would supernaturally intervene within the marriages that are represented in this room, and I pray that you would bring hope, light, life, abundant life that you promised, Lord Jesus, and may that take place through obedience to you first. And so thank you, Father. Thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us, that you have a plan for us, and we thank you for what you're doing in the midst of our fellowship. In Jesus' name, Amen.